right, we're starting James chapter 5 this morning. How many of you, of you have been anticipating this very moment? How many of you have looked ahead and read this passage and said, that's what I want to hear this morning? Anybody? That's what I thought. Okay, it is not an easy passage. Um, especially when you live in a country like this. Um, and yet, we don't want to... Take things out of a not just a, a scriptural context, but a cultural context. Uh, we, we need to be fair, so to speak, and not misinterpret this, and therefore have all sorts of false guilt. I am not here this morning to give you false guilt. Be assured of that. Okay. Now, true conviction that may happen. All right. Let's read verses one through six together as God's people. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in these last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who, who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Let's pray. Father, like uh, selfish children... We tend to tune out what you say, particularly those things that we most need to hear, um, but we don't want to hear. So help us to not tune out your voice this morning, uh, but to heed it, that we might be blessed by knowing you and the all-sufficient grace that is to be found in Jesus Christ. Send the Spirit so that your word would be understood by us, that we would believe your word and that it would accomplish its purpose to renew our minds and transform our lives. We ask this in the name of Jesus, who grants us abundant life through his own death for us. Amen. If you were to look at the history of the church, what you would find is sort of a schizophrenic view or understanding of wealth. The church tends to gravitate towards the two extremes in how it deals with and understands wealth. You have the monastic tradition that arises in which people think that wealth is evil, that money is necessarily evil, and therefore people take vows of poverty. This week I was reading Richard Foster, who is a Quaker, I was reading his book on money, sex, and power. And he takes this idea as well that somehow money is evil and is able to exert power on people. And so as a Quaker, he denies the reality of total depravity. And so he externalizes sin so it is not your heart that is the problem in this whole thing. It is money itself that is the problem here. And that all money, therefore, is unrighteous mammon and is to be handled almost with asbestos gloves, okay? 
We need to be fearful of wealth. That is one aspect of how the church has handled this question of wealth, and I believe it is an erroneous way to handle wealth. The second way is the, the other extreme, and that is to say, wealth is awesome. Wealth is so good, gimme, gimme, gimme more wealth. You really haven't found that too much in the history of the church until recently. Uh, but yes, I was uh, reading something about televangelist Paula White recently. And um, she had talked about, this was a few years ago, so excited that she had a few million dollars in the checking account. And I'm thinking, eh? A few million dollars? I can't, I can't conceive of someone who preaches the gospel for a living having two million dollars in a bank account. Okay. It doesn't, it doesn't connect with my little brain. I was at Bookman's on Friday and the kids were, were listening to the story time and I, you know, and what I do is I go and I look at any interesting books for me to read, to buy, things like that. I got a couple. But there was one I should have bought, but I didn't want to give this guy a dime on my money. Precisely because his book was entitled, How to Be a Millionaire, God's Way. <laughs> it doesn't connect with my experience in my brain yet again. But, the, but we can have an unhealthy fascination and desire for wealth. And so what the scriptures do, however, is take a different way, a middle sort of way, which talks about the blessing of wealth, but also the danger of wealth. And we have to keep that in mind as we come to this text of Scripture, or we will think he's teaching something unbalanced. Okay? So let's keep that in mind. <coughs> Both of these view, these extreme views contain something that is true, but a lot that is false. It's basically the idea. The big idea this morning, however, is that Jesus produces contentment and generosity through gospel promises. Isn't that so much better? Indeed it is. Let's start with the idea that greed gives birth to many sins. And indeed it does. Who is, but we have this question, who is James addressing here? Who is he talking to? Some have said that this is essentially a, a prophetic condemnation of the rich, similar to what you would find in Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah, uh, many of the, the minor prophets as well. That's what some have said. And I believe Calvin also takes that position as well, that he's not addressing the Christian community, but he's addressing those outside of the community. I'm not so persuaded by that. The other option is that this is a pastoral warning. I'm more inclined to believe that, because this seems far more like a sermon to God's people, because it is, in fact, a letter addressed to God's people. And there are aspects here that we see even from chapter 2, okay, where there were rich people coming into the worship service. They may or may not have been professing Christians. And so as this letter was presumably read to the people of God, there would be wealthy people who were there. Some were Christians, some were not. And James is addressing those people who were present. So it's not quite a prophetic condemnation, but we see here in his command to weep, to wail, to mourn, there's something here that looks like repentance. And so this is, this is a call to repentance with a warning of what happens if one doesn't. So, this was when Paul, when, not when Paul, when James wrote this, there I am again, Keep, I'm so used to Paul. 
there was a, it was a time of ep- economic growth, as we talked about uh, a couple weeks ago, I guess. Uh, you know, the movement within the region as people were looking to to get wealth, and so part of what happened though was this growth in the haves and the have-nots, a growing diversity, a growing bridge, a, a, a gap between the haves and the have-nots, and those who had accumulated more and more from those who had not. They had less and less. And so that's part of the cultural, social, historical context that James is speaking into at this particular point in time, as we'll see, is reflected in what he says later on. Okay, Contrary to what the Trivial Pursuit game says on its little answer card, money is not the root of all evil. I remember when I first played that game in college, even I knew it wasn't the answer. <laughs> okay? As we read from 1 Timothy 6, it is the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil. It is that love of money which gives birth to many different kinds of sin. Okay, vows of poverty are not necessary for us, right? Because the love of money sets money up as an idol. And in order to serve the idol that, that you have, money, you will do all kinds of things that you shouldn't do in order to get it and use it. Okay. Oh, I forgot my book. I was going to read some about Andrew Carnegie. When Andrew Carnegie was 33, he wrote something and he had a journal and he wrote some thoughts and he recognized that <clears throat> all men have idols and wealth was one of the most common idols that a man could have. And that it works secretly within the heart of a man to produce many different kinds of sins. And Andrew Carnegie looked at his own life and he saw that he himself was drawn towards this idol. And that there was darkness in his own heart. And in this, this little passage, he says that he thought that maybe he could, he could do this for two more years, but then it would become too great of a temptation and he would have to walk away from the business world. Two years later, he didn't. He saw, the, he saw the tendency in his own heart at that time, and that yet he did not root it out. Okay? He loved money. What happens? James talks about those two things, the use of money and the source or how you get money. And we're going to talk about the use of money first. And some people laid it up. The idea of storing up, the idea of gathering a good way is to save. Saving is encouraged in Scripture. Okay, we got to affirm saving, but this idea of hoarding—you're saving it not with a purpose toward a, a you know some other purpose. Well, I'm saving some for my retirement. Okay, <laughs> big joke there, right? Um, but this this is the idea of hoarding, more like smog in The Hobbit. That dragon. I read it when I was on vacation, and I just loved that little book. And, you know, the, the dragon gathered all of this wealth. 
And it filled this humongous treasure room that used to belong to the dwarves. And he would sleep on this heap of gold and silver and jewels. And the dwarves wanted it back. And so they sent in the burglar, Bilbo, to get some. And he, of course, had come across the ring of power, not realizing what it was, but he knew that it made him invisible. And so he sneaks into the treasure house of the dragon and somehow eludes detection because the dragon had never smelled a hobbit before and didn't know he was in danger. And he takes one item, one golden cup, to prove to the dwarves that he had sort of been in there and they all are excited about the fact that he gets this until they hear that smog has awoken. And he notices that something is gone. Can you imagine that? The detail, the love of the wealth, so much that he's able to recognize that one piece of his enormous treasure is missing, and he goes on a rampage. Okay? That's what hoarding does to people. Okay? It doesn't, it's, we're, we're used to people hoarding junk, if you watch the hoarders. Um, <laughs> okay? that, that's not what we're talking about. The hoarding of wealth is what we're talking about. And hoarding basically says, Jesus, I don't trust you to take care of me tomorrow or next year. So I'm going to hoard, I'm going to save this money so that I can take care of me because you won't. That's essentially what hoarding says. Okay, It goes away from the wisdom of saving to the excess of hoarding. The second improper use of of, uh, wealth that is mentioned here by James is to live in luxury, self-indulgence, to fatten oneself, spending all of your wealth on you, refusing to to do good. This is sort of a different selfish. This says essentially to Jesus that I need all of this to be happy. That you, Jesus, are not enough for me. And so I will seek my happiness in all these things. What has this produced in our culture, in our country, in this time? I checked the, uh, the average credit card debt numbers this morning. I hadn't seen them in a couple years. And, and uh, in July of 2011, I see that it has gone up a few thousand dollars. The average credit card debt, average, $15,800. Think about how many months' salary that is for you for a moment. And that's just credit card debt. That's not a mortgage. And for, that means that for all the people like my wife and I who have no credit card debt, there's somebody with extra, okay, to make up the difference, to make up our 15-8, okay? What about total, that's not, but that's not total consumer debt. Total consumer debt in uh, May of this year, estimated in the United States, okay, how's this number for you? point. Four three trillion dollars. 
we should rightfully say something about the politicians who spend far too much money, but we also have to look into the mirror and say we spend too much money. That's what's produced by the self-indulgence. I have to have it. I cannot wait. I will put it on my card. And we've, and we have a, as a culture, and many Christians are, are part of this, have racked up great debt. Okay? This is, most of this debt is not, I'm out of work and I have to use my credit card until I can get paid again. This is a long-standing problem, brothers and sisters. So, that is how they used it. How did they get it? How did they get this wealth? James brings up a couple of things. One is that they kept back wealth. There's sort of a textual issue that is at work here. There's two different words that look amazingly alike that mean slightly different things that are found in different manuscripts of, of this letter. Okay? One of them has the idea of defrauding others in order to get money. Uh, a Ponzi scheme, so to speak. You know, one of those just came into the press this past week uh, with this uh, booster from the University of Miami who's sitting in, in prison for a Ponzi scheme. Okay? He, he defrauded people out of money. He, he sold them a bill of goods that didn't exist. Okay? He said that, that he was investing the, their money in something, and what he would do is I would, I would take Randy's money, but then I would get Bill to invest, and I'd take Bill's money, give some of it to me, and then... Oh, Randy, look at this. Your money paid off. And then I would go to Justin and to Chris and get their money. And I'd say, oh, Bill, look, here's your return on investment. Here's my little piece right here. Oh, Randy, here's a little bit more. Okay? So Randy and Bill make money, but when it folds, Justin and Chris don't. But I get lots of money. And that's good until I end up in prison. Okay? <laughs> Defrauding. That's, that's one, one of the two words that's found here that, that could mean. The other is to withhold. And that's probably the word that fits the context a bit better because he's talking about these people have already mowed your fields. They've already done the work. They've already harvested this. You owe them something and you're not paying it. I remember as a young Christian, I was working for a Christian organization and I was the bookkeeper. And one day I had to go into the president's office. I, oh, I regularly went into the president's office because he had to sign all the checks. But on this day, he started to tell me that he was not going to pay certain debts that were due. And what was going on was that he was about to retire. And he wanted the books to look better. Unrighteous withholding of what is due. In this case, temporarily, but what these people were doing were holding it long term. They were oppressing the people who worked for them. James is essentially drawing upon Deuteronomy 24. Listen to this from uh, verse 14 and following. You shall not oppress the hired servant who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land within your towns. Okay? So whether it's an Israelite or someone who has his green card, doesn't matter. He's, you know, he's able to work there. Doesn't matter. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets. 
for he is poor and counts on it. Okay, these are the people living by daily bread. They eat what they make that day. Similar to the, some of the people we met in Mexico, one of whom uh, used to work in a tortilla factory. Guess what she made in a, day, in a week? Ten bucks. Okay. Hand to foot. That's the kind of people we're talking about here. Okay. Um, Lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. And so essentially, what James is doing is he's taking Deuteronomy 24 and he's saying, you guys are guilty of the same thing. You're oppressing people by withholding what they need. And so the righteous man who is poor and unable to resist you is starving and you may kill him. Let's go back to Andrew Carnegie. Andrew Carnegie did a lot of good things with his money. He built uh, lots of libraries, and I, I went to a park in Scotland that, that he built. Okay, He did a lot of good stuff. And yet, when you talk to those who worked for him, what you find is a very different thing. They're saying, we couldn't eat the libraries. Okay? Many of them were underpaid. The money that he made, the wealth that he accumulated, was essentially by withholding livable wages from his workers. The hospitals were too late. Okay, Business owners, they're able to make money. But you should pay people enough to live on. And many of Carnegie's employees lived in slums because they were not paid enough to live on. Okay. Accumulated wealth through oppression. But hear that gospel promise that's in there. It's a warning to the rich, but it's a promise to the poor. He will hear their cries. And who will come? It says, the Lord Sabaoth. The Lord of hosts. The Lord of the armies. Who's going to come knocking on the door? Not an innocuous person. Not, not Jesus in his, in his earth, the humility of his earthly ministry, but the Jesus who is enthroned and who rules over vast armies of angels. You think it's intimidating to get pulled over by a Mexican police officer with a semi-automatic weapon? You ain't seen nothing. This will, these people will be held accountable. Jesus will rise to the defense of his people against those who oppress them. So when wealth owns the heart, you sin in how you get wealth and how you use wealth. But brothers and sisters, wealth will only disappoint your greatest longings. The measure of a God is how well it can deliver on its promises. Can wealth deliver on the promises that it makes? Will it provide health? Will it provide joy? Will it provide security and power that, the, that people look to it for? Well, I'll tell you the joy aspect of it. Uh, not if you ask all the other rich guys of Carnegie's time. Because uh, someone asked, uh, I think it was Rockefeller, how much more money do you need? One more dollar than I've got. They were never happy with how much they had. They had humongous homes in Newport, Rhode Island that I've seen. 
How can you not be happy? Yet they weren't. Ecclesiastes 5 says that he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is a vanity. And James warns them about the miseries that are coming. That there is a day of slaughter, a day of judgment that is going to come. And and basically he's saying, your money, your wealth will not keep you from it. You can't bribe God. You can't pay it off. Ezekiel 7, verse 19. Their silver and gold are not able to deliver them in the day of the wrath of the Lord. They cannot satisfy their hunger or fill their stomachs with it. For it was the stumbling block of their iniquity. There's a lot of disappointment coming to a lot of people, and some of it happens now. We've already experienced the, the housing bubble bursting. Okay, The next bubble that may burst, student loans. They can't find jobs. They can't pay loans. They can't pay loans. What happens to the banks? Okay? This is a possibility of what might happen. There could be another financial crisis that's triggered uh, unless the economy starts uh, getting working up again. Okay? Misery. He says that their wealth has rotted. It It has lost, I'm sorry, it has lost their value due to rot and decay. It's in a sense the law of entropy. Think about all the wealth that has been lost in this country in the last few weeks. One estimate before the market crashed the last couple of weeks was $3.2 trillion. Okay. This spring, I heard that the average American had lost one quarter of their personal wealth in the last couple of years. That's the housing market right there. Your, your property values dropped by almost a quarter, if not more. So many people have lost so much wealth, it's rotted. Flew away like birds on a wing. Okay? It's moth-eaten. The rich had so many clothes. The average person had like two pair of clothes, and that was about it. But the wealth had many pairs of clothes. They had so many pairs of clothes that they apparently were moth food. They couldn't wear them often enough. They didn't have formaldehyde balls in their closet like we do. Okay, but uh, So it was eaten by these moths. But think about how, for those of you who are older, think about homes built in the 1950s versus homes built now. Okay? This is a lesson for the young people. One of the things that has changed tremendously is the size of closets. In the 1950s, were there walk-in closets? No, you were lucky if you had one that was this wide for your clothes. And then in the 60s or so, it was kind of a double-wide closet for your stuff. And now, my walk-in closet is humongous. Okay? That's a sign of our wealth and the shift in our hearts. We can't use all that stuff. A lot of it goes to waste. It's wasted. 
So moth-eaten. Not only that, but corroded. To become rusty, tarnished, or corroded. It's interesting because, you know, obviously silver tarnishes, it oxidizes. But one of the interesting things here is that gold, pure gold anyway, does not oxidize. And so some people might be thinking, is the scripture lying about the gold rusting or tarnishing? Well, they may not have had pure gold. They may not have spent the time to purify it. I don't know. But the scriptures talk about it in the prophets, about how it, it becomes worthless. Whether it physically corrodes or not, it becomes worthless when it matters most. Okay? His warnings are completely in line with the warnings that Jesus made. And so we have to reckon with these. Where is our heart? Because Jesus says, your treasure is where your heart is. Your heart will follow that which you treasure. So hearts that are owned by wealth will experience great loss on the final day. Ready for good news? I hope you are. Uh, Jesus frees us from worshiping wealth. That's, uh, that's the big idea. Uh, while this text is great regarding the dangers of greed, he doesn't necessarily explicitly bring us to the good stuff. He doesn't provide a remedy aside from repentance, which is a good remedy. But growth in grace, sanctification, will necessarily involve how we both obtain and use wealth. God does not just sanctify you, God sanctifies your checkbook. Because he's sanctifying how he how you use your checkbook, your credit card, your wealth. Okay? So there is when God works in us, he does not say, Oh well, you know, man, their finances are off limits to me. <laughs> he he makes no such promises. There's a cartoon I I can't remember where I found it, but some guy is being baptized by immersion, and there's his hand up with his puck, with his uh, wallet, you know, sorry, <laughs> above the water. God gets everything but this. And, and, and that's sort of part of the, what people like David Platt are trying to get at is that the gospel, because it changes our hearts, changes our relationship to money. And I don't, I don't always agree about how they go about that. But it is, a, it is a true thing. Churches, it's not just individuals, churches, We're talking because we're talking about the community of faith here in James, churches need to grow in grace. We tend, churches tend toward hoarding or self-indulgence themselves. You know, I've, I've walked into churches and seen humongous fountains in lobbies. How's that serving the cause of the gospel? I don't know. I don't get it. Okay, but... Maybe someday they'll explain it to me, and I'll, oh, okay, all right. But we, we tend to be self-indulgent in how we use our money as churches. Or some churches kind of hoard. I served The church I served in Florida for a while, they were the hoarders, man. They'd had some tough financial times. It was like they lived through the, all through the Depression and didn't want to let a dime out, you know. It was the cheap people, okay. We can't live in those two places, brothers and sisters, we can't be so afraid that we don't spend money, but we also need to be, be careful of, are we spending it on ourselves, or is it really about the gospel? 
And so therefore, we, we as a church and as individuals must put temptations to steal, defraud, or exploit others to death. Paul talks about this in Colossians 3. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and now our, our text, covetousness, which is idolatry. We are to put to death that quest for more and more money to spend on ourselves. And we will only do this if we actually trust Jesus to provide through ordinary and extraordinary means. That's where it hits the road, right there. You know, sometimes he provides through ordinary means. Sometimes he provides through extraordinary means. During our transition, I worked hard. Ordinary means, not enough came in. And God provided through extraordinary means so that my family was provided for. We learned what it meant, really, to live uh, with that prayer, give us this day our daily bread. That, sometimes we have to learn that, what that means. And so Jesus begins to move us from greed into contentment, from the, the quest for ever accumulating more to being content with what we have, precisely because we know two things. He will provide our daily bread, and He will be present. Listen to this from Hebrews 13. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Okay, Put to death covetousness. Seek God to bring to life contentedness. But what is it? For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Think about that for a moment. The answer to your covetousness is, I will never leave you nor forsake you. God says, I will be with you. You don't have to love that. You don't have to give yourself over to that. You don't have to live in fear and anxiety. Why? Because I will be with you. And where I am, all my resources are. You'll be taken care of. Just like we tell our kids, almost every meal, we'll take care of you. There will be enough because mommy and daddy are here. There will be enough because King Jesus is here. And so unless you are content in Christ, you will end up being stuck serving wealth. Okay, So there's a transfer of allegiance, there's a transfer of worship from your stuff to Jesus that needs to take place. And so we are to meditate upon His perfections and His provision. We are to focus upon His faithfulness. Uh, Friday night we went to a presentation about homeschooling and it was actually on the idea of attention. And... Um, and how a lot of the media of our day are really creating an attention deficit. People can't pay attention to anything anymore, uh, you know. And we have a spiritual, I, this is my application, we have a spiritual ADD. We can't sit down and sit with God and meditate anymore. 
We're so distracted by all these different things. We can't just sit and read the Bible and listen to what He says. We can't just spend a half an hour praying. We have spiritual ADD. We need to cry out for His help so that we can, once again, give Him our attention. Okay? If you're not worshiping Jesus, then you probably aren't trusting Him. And that gets back to you, you, you haven't been focusing on His perfections and His provision and His faithfulness. So Jesus is moving us, whether we like it or not, from greed to contentment, but He's also moving us from greed to generosity. Okay? Contentment sort of deals with both hoarding and self-indulgence, and this one really deals with self-indulgence. Moving us into generosity. You can't trust in your wealth if you're giving it away. That's part of why Paul said what he did in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Tell them not to put their hope in their earthly treasures, but what? Do good with it. Give it away. We cannot store up treasure in two places. Okay, You can't store up treasure in heaven if you're storing it here on earth, is what Jesus says in Matthew 6. Okay, You're going to serve either God or money. And that's going to be reflected in terms of where you store your treasure. Our heart is going to follow that treasure. And so our longing for eternity is measured, the true measure of our longing for eternity, can be found often in our checkbooks. In Proverbs 19.7, it talks about how giving to the poor is lending to God. And He will repay. That's the aspect of storing up treasures in heaven. Here, God. Here, God. I'm not storing it up here. I'm, I'm investing in there. Okay. When we were engaged, Amy and I lived on different parts of the East Coast. Okay, Where do you think Amy wanted to be? Not New Jersey. Well, she probably did want to stay in New Jersey, but she wanted to be with me. We don't know why, but this is so. Okay, And because she wanted to be with me, I would get these boxes as she, she mailed her stuff down, bit by bit. She was transferring her treasures from where she was to where she wanted to be. And I think that's a good picture of what Jesus has in mind, of what Paul had in mind, and what James, if he took a little more time, would have said too. You send it on ahead by giving it away to people who need it, to the, to the, the, the furtherance of the gospel. These sorts of things. So as individuals and churches, this text really ought to challenge us to examine how our relationship with wealth. Remember I talked about spiritual ADD? We need to sit down with Jesus in the Scriptures. Tell me where my heart is in this. Take a good hard look. Because James says this is really important. This says something about your spiritual condition. 
So we live in a world that is captivated with money, a world that is eager to get it, eager to use it. And I will pull in my plug right now that Ayn Rand is wrong, and the, the conservatives who rely upon Ayn Rand, wrong. Okay, That's selfishness, that's self-indulgence. It's wrong. The love of money is destroying nations and even the church. Jesus wants us to be captivated with him so that we can earn and use our money to his glory. That grace will change our relationship to stuff. And you will neither hate it nor love it. But you see it as a good thing that can be used for Jesus' glory. So where do you need more grace from Jesus in your relationship with wealth? That's what James wants to ask you. Let's pray. Father, help us to heed your warnings that we might entrust ourselves more fully into Jesus' care. Grant us each the grace um, as your people and grant us grace as a community to slow down and consider him who was rich but made himself poor, that he might enrich others spiritually. Convict us of the ways in which we are not entrusting ourselves into the care of him who loved us and gave himself for us. For the ways in which we're seeking satisfaction in something that will never die for us and for our sins. May we see these as secondary delights meant to help us behold and enjoy our everlasting treasure, the source of true delight, Jesus Christ himself, our creator, our savior, our king. Amen.